Hi, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here again. Episode 299. You know what that means. To all listeners and imbibers of the CHP, the Chinese Sayings Podcast, Tea History Podcast, and all the other bits and pieces of the teacup media empire, my deepest thanks, always and forever, for fitting me into your life. One of the elder statesmen of independent history podcasting, Travis Dow, who was already a fixture in the community when I threw my hat in the ring, used to have this show, which is still available. It's called The History of Alchemy. He did that with Pete Coleman out in Prague. Pete of the Bohemian podcast fame. He's still there. And the show was a nice little romp through the history of all things alchemical, with an emphasis on European and Arabian alchemy, though they covered China through the life of Ge Hong, who we'll get to in part two. Anyway, great show, and last I spoke to Travis, it may or may not get resurrected. It depends a lot on how successful his new hot sauce venture up in Oregon goes, and if Tabasco or Tapatio buys him out. I've been meaning for the longest time to introduce the life of Ge Hong myself, and then I figured, eh, what the hey, let's just give the whole subject of the history of Chinese alchemy a CHP once-over and look at Ge Hong in the context of the big picture. What Lu Yu was to tea, that's who Ge Hong was to Chinese alchemy. So I randomly checked a reputable website and found two main definitions of alchemy. First, it's a form of chemistry and speculative philosophy practiced in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, and concerned mainly with discovering methods of transmuting baser metals into gold, as well as the pursuit of an elixir of life. It's also defined as any seemingly magical process of transforming or combining elements into something new. Now, by that first definition, you'd think that alchemy all began in Europe, you know, as something practiced in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Well, in China, alchemy was already being explored since before the birth of Christ, and it's believed by many scholars that the Europeans were introduced to alchemy from the Arabs during the time of the Crusades. And it was the Arabs who gave this science its name, Alchemia. The Arabs most likely learned about alchemy from the Chinese during the Tang Dynasty when Chinese armies fought the forces of first the Umayyad and then the Abbasid Caliphates beyond the western borders of modern-day Xinjiang. And the Arabs got a lot more out of this confrontation with the Chinese than tips on paper making. Now, we credit sinologist Obed Simon Johnson for being the first in the West to point out in the 1920s that alchemy was being practiced in China long before European practitioners began exploring the possibilities. Dr. Joseph Needham, featured in this very same China History Podcast program in a two-part series, he was a great admirer of Johnson. And further to what Obed Simon Johnson wrote in his Study of Chinese Alchemy, published in 1928, Needham said, quote, while the elixir of life concept had been mightily prevalent during the Qin and the Han, it did not manifest itself in European alchemy until the time of Roger Bacon and the incorporation of Arabic knowledge. End quote. No matter Europe, Arabia, or China, turning ignoble metals into gold or silver in the pursuit of an elixir of life, that was the main thing alchemists all had in common. The Chinese practitioners of alchemy sought to achieve immortality, or at least longevity, by practicing 
certain rituals and exercises that would purify their mind and spirit, and then the ancient tools were brought out to assist in the production of these alchemical concoctions. And these included the five elements, the I Ching, the forces of yin and yang, and all the accumulated cosmological knowledge learned over the centuries through careful observation and mathematics. To bring oneself in harmony with these forces brought one closer to the Tao. Chinese alchemy, early on and for all its days, got joined at the hip with the Taoist religion that first began to appear during the Eastern Han. In addition to adhering to all the spiritual aspects of alchemy, those who sought its benefits would ingest these substances derived from jade, gold, or cinnabar. And alchemists claimed, and people hoped, that the spiritual properties that the alchemists claimed were contained in these substances, well, even though they were often toxic, heavy metals, well, after being ingested, or through other means, they could pass on the properties of longevity or good health to the person consuming it. People's belief in alchemy was rooted in the acceptance that the powers derived from these scriptures and alchemical prescriptions were received from a divine source. So a belief in the supernatural was accepted as a given by all practitioners and adepts of alchemy. In Taoist scriptures, deities like the Yellow Emperor are said to have achieved immortality through the consuming of these magical elixirs. He's one of the earliest of these sovereign gods or immortals who had achieved immortality, it was thought, through consuming these magical elixirs, and that these immortals could bestow immortality onto others. An early Western scholar of Chinese alchemy, H.J. Shepard, called alchemy, quote, the art of liberating parts of the cosmos for temporal existence to achieve perfection, which for metals was gold, and for man, longevity, immortality, and finally, redemption. End quote. We may snicker at all this now in the 21st century, but 2,000 and more years ago, this notion was much more real in the minds of people. It was by no means considered fantasy that a golden elixir, or jindan, could be produced. That's one of the many names for these compounds that were ground up and heated in a danding and then placed inside a crucible or furnace. The character dan in Chinese medicine means a pellet or powder of some sort, and it's also one of the characters for the word cinnabar. The elixirs, whatever kind it may be, were called something or other dan. And inside that furnace, a transformation occurred that altered the material into an essence or a true nature of the properties of the materials in the compound, as understood at that time. And the essence of the concoction would, and you had to take this on faith, be made up of the primary components of the cosmos and the human being. It was believed that the crucible served as a medium that served as a substitute for the inchoate state of the universe prior to the formation of the cosmos. And all those ingredients that were added to create the elixir symbolized the primary components of the cosmos and of human beings, as it was understood by these Chinese alchemists in the two centuries before and after the birth of Christ in the West. 
After the person consumed this alchemical concoction, that's where the final process, so to speak, happened. Inside the human, the essence of the concoction, the dan, dispersed throughout the body's internal systems and delivered the immortality, or at least the longevity, that was being sought. The art of producing these elixirs was called external alchemy, or why dan. Now, we can't know with certainty where a tradition of scientific alchemy began in China, but most sources will point you in the direction of Zhou Yan, who lived during the final decades of the Warring States period, 305 to 240 BC. Prior to Zhou Yan, the alchemical tradition was mostly carried out by these fangshers, who were employed by royalty and anyone else who could afford them. Pleco defines a feng shi as a necromancer, or alchemist. The Chinese character feng has about 15 definitions, the most suitable one, in this case, being a medical prescription. Dr. Joseph Needham held Zhou Yan in very high regard, calling him, quote, the real founder of all Chinese scientific thought, end quote. He was a contemporary of Xunzi, Hanfei, and Li Si. These men, and many other great minds in China, all knew each other from the Jixia Xuegong, the Jixia Academy in Qi State, present-day Shandong Province. And as I was saying, Zhou Yan was one of these polymaths who, according to historian Sima Tan, was the founder of the Yin-Yang School of Philosophy. He wasn't an alchemist, though. Never tried to mix up an elixir of life. None of that. Zhou Yan is credited with discovering the nexus that existed between science and philosophy. And he pointed to the five elements as the key to understanding it. The five elements, the Wu Xing, fire, water, wood, metal, and earth. Zhou took the concept of yin and yang and synthesized it with the five elements and in so doing, organized an entire cosmology that had these wuxing, these five agents or elements, as its nucleus. Taoist mystics embraced many ideas from Zhou Yan, especially how Zhou explained the entire universe in terms of yin and yang and the five elements. Once this was explained so neatly by Zhou Yan, alchemists used it like their slide rule all throughout Chinese history. Alchemists, and many others as well, were familiar with the changes that happen in the natural world and how yin and yang were central to all that. Alchemists later on took these yin-yang principles and applied them to minerals like cinnabar, mercury, realgar, and white arsenic. Once Zhou Yan shined the light, these fangshers later on in a venerable ancient work called the Huainanzi introduced the idea of the metamorphosis of minerals for the first time. And this became one of the foundation stones of Chinese alchemy. In the 2nd century BC, and for many centuries that followed, it was believed that minerals buried beneath the earth continued to change. And later alchemists believed that by channeling the power of divine beings usually straight from Taoism, that one could accelerate the natural metamorphosis of these minerals and bring about alchemical transformation. Certain materials would, in their own geological time, naturally change into silver and gold, two substances that symbolized perfection. 
And just like they did with Puar tea, accelerating the aging process to produce ripe tea leaves, the alchemist would put their skills and metallurgy to use to do the same thing for various minerals pulled from the earth, thereby saving themselves the hassle of having to wait around for a few hundred million years. In Chinese history, we well remember how Qin Shi Huang lusted for this elixir that was rumored to exist. He wished to consume it and in so doing achieve some kind of immortality. But before he could consume it, he had to find it. And the story that's been told perhaps millions of times since the 3rd century BC is the one concerning Xu Fu and his two trips to the east to seek out the elixir of life. Xu Fu, a Taoist of renown in his day, even though the religion had not yet been invented, was an alchemist of high repute back in Qi State who went on to serve Qin Shi Huang in the capital as one of his fengshers. In 219 and 210 BC, Xu Fu went on two expeditions to retrieve this elixir of life from a mythical place called Peng Lai, where the immortals dwelled. It was located far to the east, in Shandong, perhaps it was in Qingdao or some island off the coast. In Chinese mythology, Peng Lai was sort of like a, a Mount Olympus or Valhalla kind of place. It's said that the earliest fengshers, spiritualists and magicians, and early alchemists started appearing in and around easternmost Shandong, where so much else in early Chinese history originated. Their stock in trade was curing illnesses and selling magic potions. There in this secret location on Peng Lai, Qin Shi Huang had been told by Xu Fu that there existed this Bu Si Shu, the Tree of Immortality. Xu Fu was loaded up with provisions and supplies to last three years and tasked by the emperor to find the tree and to bring back the elixir. And as the story goes, the first trip in 219 BC was unsuccessful. And as a side note, Xu Fu, after several years of searching in vain, did not find Peng Lai or any other sacred mountain, but he did leave some people at one of the mountains he came upon, just east of Qingdao, that we know of today as Laoshan. Then again, in 210 BC, Xu Fu, with imperial sponsorship, attempted to seek out the elixir of life. He didn't return from the second trip, which was just as well because the first Qin emperor died that very summer. So Xu Fu went 0 for 2 as far as these fantastical voyages went. Another very interesting legend about Shifu claims that after failing again in 210 BC to find Mount Peng Lai, rather than return to Xianyang and face the certain wrath of the Qin Emperor, he sailed in the direction of Saga Prefecture in Japan and became known there as Jofuku. And there at Kinryuzan, Mount Kinryu, he spent his remaining days trying to discover a Busijer Yao, an elixir of life. So in addition to the Qin Shi Huang and Laoshan legends, Xu Fu was called the first to cross the ocean and establish cultural exchanges between the people of China and Japan. It has long been suspected that Qin Shi Huang died of mercury poisoning brought on by all these concoctions he was consuming, and that there is this toxic river of mercury below his yet-to-be-excavated tomb. The early alchemists from these B.C. years, well, they didn't know much compared to their colleagues from later dynasties, but they felt certain that all the sought-after properties of gold 
could somehow be made potable for someone to be able to drink the concoction and live forever. Juan Quan wrote about this for the first time in a 60-chapter document from the Western Han called On Salt and Iron, Yan Tie Lun. Huan Quan's dates of when he lived are unknown, but he did live during the Han Dynasty. This important ancient work, On Salt and Iron, has nothing to do with alchemy, but Huan Quan did mention about alchemists that their job was to use all their skills, smarts, knowledge of yin and yang, the five elements in human anatomy, to figure out some kind of way to extract the vital essence of gold and mix it into a potable form. Huan Quan had written in this work, quote, Immortals swallow gold and pearls so that they can enjoy eternal life in heaven and on earth, end quote. This work is also the earliest we can reliably go back where the idea of ingesting elixirs is mentioned, which was in the context of the story of Qin Shi Huang and his obsession to find this elixir, and that he foolishly backed so many charlatans and quacks. There were actually a number of concoctions created that contained potable gold. I mean, we've all seen the videos of high-end restaurants who garnish some of their dishes with gold flakes. There's also a drug on the market that contains gold, and it's used to treat the very same rheumatoid arthritis that the Chinese use gold for centuries before Christopher Columbus's great-great-grandfather lived. China's history is so old, it's become commonplace to say China was the first place to whatever. Well, as far as the therapeutic properties of gold, China was the first to recognize them and do something about it. They believed the gold had certain effects on the body that were able to reverse some of the maladies of the day, like joint pain and reducing inflammation. If you just go on the Google and query 24-karat gold flakes health benefits, it's touted today as a remedy for joint inflammation, prevents acne, reduces the appearances of fine lines and wrinkles, presumably from one's face, I'm guessing. It also claims to reduce the appearance of sun damage, age spots, and aids in lightening your skin, and that the gold isotope 198 in particular is good for treating some cancers. India and Egypt as well, they're ancient lands who also explored the pharmacology of gold. Unlike in China's case, they didn't leave behind any record of using gold to cure sicknesses. In a number of treatises on Chinese medicine, going back to the mythical Shunnong's Materia Medica, there are many references to alchemical processes involving gold. These elixirs were very much in demand by those with enough wealth to afford them. From time to time, beginning in the Han Dynasty, there would be prohibitions placed on the practice of alchemy outside the imperial court. Besides the first Qin emperor, there was one other major heavy from Chinese history with a lust for immortality. The Han Dynasty emperor Wu, Han Wu Di, he too was a major believer of the elixir of life, and Liu Che was as determined as Ying Zheng to achieve immortality. We know a lot more about Emperor Wu's involvement in the alchemical arts. He only came half a century after the Qin Emperor's death in 210 BC. The practice of alchemy had continued 
unabated into the Han Dynasty. Despite any prohibitions or regulations, the experimentation never stopped. And during Han Wudi's time, there lived a person named Li Xiaojun, who was considered by many in his day to be one of the more accomplished practitioners in his trade. And we said he was quite old, in his hundreds, but had stopped aging in his 70s. And in 133 BC, he walked into Han Wudi's life and sold him on the idea of worshipping the furnace. The furnace, again, was where all the magic happened in the alchemical process. The furnace, or Zhao, symbolized some deity. Homer Dubs, a name you may recall from that part one episode on Sino-Roman relations, said of this stove, quote, Alchemy was under the care of a special god, the stove, a beautiful old woman clad in red garments with her hair done up in a knot on the top of her head. As the god in charge of cooking and brewing medicines, she naturally took care of alchemy, too. End quote. The furnaces used by alchemists look very much like mini ziggurat-shaped pyramids, with three tiers of square platforms representing Tian, Di, Ren, Heaven, Earth, and Humanity. The alchemist would use the wisdom of the Yi Jing and the five elements to meticulously align the stove or furnace with the universal cosmic order of all things. A lot of the most ancient wisdom thought up by the Chinese during the Zhou dynasty was now much, much more refined and better understood in the Han. An entire cosmological order had been thought up and perfected that utilized the entire arsenal of ancient Chinese books, diagrams, hexagrams, observations, and experience. You can imagine how much trial and error occurred and how many volumes and volumes of notes on observations were made. So much of what early humans knew about the natural world, about chemistry and metallurgy, often came as an unintended consequence of these thousands and thousands of alchemical experiments. This was how gunpowder was thought to have been discovered. The chemical composition of gunpowder was first written in 142 AD by the Eastern Han alchemist and writer Wei Boyang, who we'll look at next episode. These fangshers and alchemists, they sought to make gold out of mercury. But as we'll see in many of the attempts to make alchemical gold... They produced other materials instead. It wasn't what they wanted, but they found it useful. So Li Xiaojun, he's the first one in early Chinese history who managed to get written into the official historical record as a practitioner of this Wai Dan, or external alchemy, that I previously mentioned. Wai Dan, this was the branch of alchemy that concerned making elixirs and alchemical gold. And because his story was recorded in the official histories, we remember Li Xiaojun as the earliest known Chinese alchemist. In the external alchemical tradition, Wai Dan, all things had either yin or yang principles in their makeup. Lead, for example, was considered pure yin. Mercury and cinnabar, from which mercury was extracted, were pure yang. These and other minerals could be synthesized inside a crucible to create new substances that had the desired yin-yang traits that alchemists were seeking. Anyway, 
He was quite a talker, Li Xiaojun was, and he, he sure got in good with Emperor Wu. According to the Shi Ji, a record of the Grand Historian, Emperor Wu totally bought into everything Li Xiaojun told him, especially about the achieving immortality part. Li Xiaojun gave very detailed instructions about what rituals and spiritual cleansing Han Wu Di had to perform, what natural grains to avoid eating, and he was not to consume any potions containing medicinal gold. Instead, he called for alchemical gold to be produced from cinnabar, and this gold that was created was then cast into dinnerware, plates and cups, and Li Xiaojun assured Emperor Wu by using these utensils to dine, the magical properties that had long been ascribed to gold would be conferred to the emperor. So imperial sponsorship of alchemy and the whole elixir of life thing really got a big boost under Han Emperor Wu, who reigned 141 to 87 BC. And the momentum that this Wai Dan, or external alchemy, gained during this period in the Han carried through all the way into the Tang. Well, we don't know for sure the real magnitude of Li Xiaojun's achievements. Obviously, his elixirs didn't work on Han Wu Di, who's been gone now for more than 21 centuries. Although Li Xiaojun will be mentioned quite a bit in later alchemical texts, mostly he's remembered as an early pioneer, and of course, for his association with Han Wu Di, Luan Da, was the name of another one of these many fang shers who dealt in alchemy and the supernatural. And he too, in 113 BC, just like Rasputin, managed to insinuate himself into Han Wu Di's world and made enough fantastical claims that the emperor allowed this rather rough fellow to even marry his daughter. Then, just as the first Qin emperor did in the 3rd century BC, Emperor Wu entrusted Luan Da to go seek out these immortals who lived far, far to the east where fabled Peng Lai was located. Luan Da thereupon attempted and promptly failed in his mission and ended up being hunted down by Emperor Wu's men and promptly executed. Emperor Wu had no doubt already been fooled by enough charlatans and magicians and no longer suffered fools lightly. Now this and Qin Shi Huang's pipe dream of immortality were well documented in the official histories. During the Western Han, there was one major incident in the history of Chinese alchemy that rendered the practice's credibility such a blow, it almost ended it altogether. This involved the story of Liu Xiang. Now Liu Xiang was like the Da Vinci or Goethe of his day, a polymath of great renown in the Western Han. Liu Xiang did it all. Scholar, literatus, official, an astronomer, poet, essayist, and famously organized the Han Imperial Library, a job that his son, Liu Xin, completed. Liu Xiang had the same Liu surname as all Han rulers and was in fact distantly related to the royal family. Liu Xiang served Han Emperor Xuan during the greatest years for the dynasty. Like his great-grandfather, Han Wu Di, Emperor Xuan more than dabbled in the realm of Taoism and the supernatural, particularly the alchemical side of things. In 60 BC, Emperor Xuan was hooked up with Liu Xiang, 
and the two began discussing the subject of alchemy and what was and wasn't possible. Liu Xiang assured the emperor that gold could be produced using certain alchemical processes, and Han Emperor Xuan decided to back Liu Xiang to the hilt and put up all the necessary imperial backing to fund the research and development, as well as to assemble a dream team of the best alchemists in all the Han Empire, as well as magicians and all manners of fang shi's. Well, they got an A for effort, but Liu Xiang, despite the extent of his erudition, all the financial and spiritual backing of the emperor, even with all that, he failed to produce alchemical gold that could be utilized to bring immortality to the emperor, or anyone for that matter. The whole effort all came to naught, and alchemy in general took a big hit, didn't bounce back until the 2nd or 3rd century A.D., and that's all for next time. Homer Dubs, again, wrote of Liu Xiang's failure this way, quote, The explanation was that he was not fated to make alchemical gold and also did not possess the indispensable drug necessarily added to the alchemical mix, end quote. This drug, mentioned by Dubs, was what later alchemists called the Philosopher's Stone. Most of you have heard that term, Philosopher's Stone. By definition, the Philosopher's Stone was, quote, a substance sought by alchemists that would be capable of transmuting baser metals into gold or silver and of prolonging life, end quote. That was alchemy's holy grail. No one ever discovered it. And no one ever produced an elixir of life that worked as advertised, except perhaps in a place 40 minutes from where I record this, called Hollywood. So this high-profile failure of Liu Xiang delivered quite a setback to Chinese alchemists. But rest assured, the whole notion of transmutation of minerals and the elixir of life will come roaring back in the late 3rd century after Ge Hong makes his noteworthy discovery. Liu Xiang, by the way, is featured in a recent Chinese sayings podcast. It's from Liu Xiang where we get the very famous story of Mengmu Sanqian, the story of Mengzi's mother, moving three times to find the perfect place to raise her son. And that's straight out of Liu Xiang's biography about exemplary women from his time and before. So go check that story out at the Chinese Sayings Podcast. If you like Chinese history, you'll get plenty of it at the CSP. A new Chinese idiom each time. And a nice story to go with each one, filled with many of the people discussed in this very China History Podcast. Just saying. So let's put the bookmark in right here with the story of Liu Xiang and that shameless plug for one of my other shows. And then next time, we'll pick up in the 3rd century AD and we'll look at everything else that happened with... China's alchemists. So just judging by what I know, you're definitely going to want to come back for part two. Once again, not until I figure out the secrets of producing alchemical gold. I'm going to have to keep asking you all for your kind support. Just go to my website, that's all you have to do, at teacup.media. Prominently displayed will be a link that will take you to a whole range of different ways for you to donate to this long-running family program, as well as helping me from having to go back and make an honest living. Okay, folks, this is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Los Angeles, California. I have no reason to be over-optimistic, but I hope to see you back here in two weeks' time with more Chinese alchemy here at the China History Podcast.